Hello and welcome to Tell Me About Your D&D Character, a podcast where people get the chance to talk about their characters from different role-playing games. I'm your host Jeremy and today I'm talking with another one of the Melbourne Dungeon Master crew, Tim Wilson. Now Tim is also the Dungeon Master for the Salty Dragon Tavern game on Twitch, uh, which we talk about a little bit during the episode. Um, And this was also recorded above the Tramway Hotel in North Fitzroy, where Tim and I, before the lockdown, before before the COVID, before the dark times. We uh, played Dungeons and Dragons uh, for beginners for the most part, but a couple of ongoing campaigns as well. They were really fun. It was amazing to get to meet new people and just run games for everyone in a fun setting, Uh, hang out in a pub, talk with people, introduce them to Dungeons and Dragons. It was a really good time. I'm not nostalgic at all for those those halcyon days. Uh, but that is why the sound quality is a little bit off from what you might expect. It was quite difficult recording um, in the, the area, uh, trying to, to find a space and also with a pub downstairs. But hopefully you'll be able to, to um, listen through it all. Uh, but we'll get into it and you can judge for yourself. It's all good. It's all good. So anyway, Tim, yes. welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, but we want to know, tell me about your first D&D character. Or whichever one you're playing now. Whichever one you would like to tell us about. I, I can't remember my first D&D character because um, the very first time I started playing Dungeons and Dragons on fact, any tabletop, um, I was the Dungeon Master straight off the bat. Oh wow, Forever DM. Forever DM, yeah. Real Forever DM. Uh, but I have actually played some characters before. Um, it's always one of those scenarios when you've got to be there sometimes. But I did play, and this is like uh, edition 3.5, so this is when we've got all those extra cool little books. Oh yeah, for yeah all the splat books. Yes, yeah. all the prestige classes and stuff like that. So I had a uh, frenzied berserker, which is a Ooh. human, and he was absolutely fantastic. I was the leader of the group. that kind of says what kind of group it was doesn't it (laughs) the thing is is that because I was the strongest and the most powerful because of being a friend of Berserker I could survive all that was thrown at us uh, quite considerably Um, and then the dungeon master at the time sort of didn't know what to do with me Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I had a a few friends with me when we were doing that so one was playing a cleric and every time I go into friends of Berserker if you don't know the rules Unlike a normal berserk, you could just kind of like end it whenever they feel like, and maybe yep. a few sort of side effects will happen. And for a frenzy berserker, they basically can't end it until their time is up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will kill every single enemy they find, and if there is nothing left enemy wise to find, they will just find the next closest target. Yep. Uh, They'll keep fighting themselves until they run out of range, or, or the rest of the party. Uh, and so. The cleric of the group would do quite a lot of calm emotions on me to sort of... Because if I was able to calm my emotions, I was able to sort of break out of my friends and stuff yep. like that and make life very easy. So we kind of like, at a party level, a little bit min-maxed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could like, you know, do a wisdom save to sort of get out of me and stuff like that. But because of this particular reasoning, I survived quite a lot of stuff within the game that we were running. Uh, the Dungeon Master threw a lot of really heavy stuff at that most parties wouldn't have been able to survive. I have to like go to zero hit points and still keep going. <laughs> you know, that's how fringe berserkers work. Maybe 14, yeah, I'll still keep going. Um, but it wasn't so much about the fact that you know 
on a mechanical level what the Freedom yeah. Berserker was. It's about the dynamic that we managed to sort of attain. Mm-hmm. I, I became the leader not because I chose to become the leader, just because it was the default. I became the only surviving character within the campaign after new characters had been introduced. That yeah. The only way for the actual story to continue on was through me. Mm-hmm. So, but everyone in the party, everyone of my friends who played with us understood how I worked. And we sort of looked at it like that if I, as a Freedom Berserker, had no more targets to actually attack mm-hmm. or visibly see, I would just like start smashing furniture or stuff like yeah. that. So they knew that um, once the Freedom Berserker was getting close, or sorry, once the combat was getting close to an end, uh, they would leave. <laughs> <laughs> you just leave you in the room with one goblin Pretty and be like... Okay, so um, I've, just I've, call us when you're done. I've killed, I've like killed this thing, and then like, oh, there's no one else in the room. I start smashing furniture and stuff like that, <laughs> and it became this thing where we managed to sort of just just do that. It made sense, and it made it so we didn't have to be so you know kill each other sort of party by accident because I was a friendly berserker. So it was mm. a lot of fun, um, but because of how strong I was, it was very interesting because of how strong I was and how much how hard it was to die. Everyone else who played some of the more regular characters who could die easily. We're unfortunately dying and they did yeah um and it was it was rather difficult like i think i managed to get to level 11 and because they had a death penalty for um, coming back to new characters according to the dungeon master i think they managed to get like up to eight or nine to sort of equal with me but yeah they went through at least uh one to two characters each Jeez. everyone else in my party mm-hmm. while i was still sort of like chugging along and stuff like that um but what made it fun was that fact that we came with that with that dynamic we understood how each other worked mm. And my, most of my decisions were, well, so should we do this? And it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shove the shoulders, just like, yeah, let's do it. Feels a very Conan, classic Conan the Barbarian where yeah. he just goes on adventures and people show up and sometimes people die. Yeah, pretty much. And it's like he's got exactly, some friends yeah. that are sometimes with him, but they're probably going to die, but it's he'll like, survive. It's like most anecdotes. You don't remember sort of like everything. That you do. Um, but to emphasize the way that my character was, we were hired by a paladin. Hmm. Um, an ex-paladin from what we can gather from what we learned to steal something from someone's house like a big mansion or something like that because it was part of their family heirloom or something like that it was being taken from his family for god knows whatever reason and we went yeah right let's do it yeah why not (laughs) (laughs) sure it's money yeah uh and the paladin's like on about you know going on about you know i'm a paladin i'm not here to steal anything i'm not here to do anything but i just want to retrieve my family's thing yeah where roads and thingies, <laughs> you know, all of the hyper sort of classical tropes you would expect of a typical D&D party. So the very first entrance into the mansion was in through the library. Now, I wasn't particularly dumb as a berserker, and I did have, you know, mages with him and stuff like that. We've gone in through the library. Yeah. We've gone, books are expensive, right? <laughs> Bag of holding stuff. We, just, <laughs> we didn't even look at the books. We just started putting books into our thing. I've sadly seen that in retail as well. People yeah. just... <laughs> Um, and in doing so, um, the paladin was getting really angry with us. Yeah. Like, it was just, no, no, we're not here to steal stuff. And I'm like, I don't give a shit about you. <laughs> and the rest of the party's just going, you're not money. here to steal you're stuff. <laughs> I'm here to get money. Um, and the paladin was just like going, no, we're not here to steal. Let's just move on. Let's move on. I'm like, I'm doing the, like, the, the, the twitch. <laughs> and the rest of the party knew exactly what was going on. So, like, one party member just goes, just going to leave out to the hallway <laughs> another person sort of goes out in the hallway and we we're having this like back and forth conversation between me and the dungeon master who was playing the paladin um, and then he it led to the fact that the paladin has sort of like a demon sort of 
sort of some, something about him. Yeah, something's so, going on. Something's going on. That only came in after all of the shit happened, though, but it was like a little bit of, okay, I'm kind of justified for doing this. But I got to a point where he was just pissing me off too much because <laughs> he tried to stop us from robbing stuff because that's what we do. Yeah. And I basically said, nah, screw this, Frenzy Berserker, and went, went to town on the Paladin. For that one night only, one of uh, our roommate, who was normally not there on our D&D nights, um, did play D&D. Uh, he decided to make up character on the spot for that one day. Uh, he made a swashbuckler with like a rapier and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like a big giant berserker with a big giant two-handed axe. I go to attack this paladin and he doesn't understand the dynamics of the whole party. So he's the only one who has uh... left the room. He attempts to parry my axe <laughs> and succeeds. Wow. <laughs> Somehow, with this little rapier, blocks my big giant axe as I'm about to hit the Theo. And that was like... Twitch, 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 French Berserker, kill him first. <laughs> and then go for the paladin and kill him off. <laughs> He's and, the bigger threat now. Yeah, it's kind of like when you've been a dungeon master so long and you get the player and you kind of just like get to do so that unleash absolutely fantastic stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just getting to realize that, that little bit of fantasy, that... Um, that power yes. dynamic when you've realized they're just going to go nuts. It's they're like, going to do everything they want to do. This is what they're built for. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, like, it's know, wonderful. In doing that, I, you kind of get an understanding of why party members, like when you as a dungeon master do that, why are you doing that? This is not the game of road. Yeah, but what they want to do. Then you become that character. Oh, yeah. I now I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I find the most annoying players are the ones who were dungeon masters. Yeah. Or forever DMs who finally get on the other side of the screen and like, Oh, I'm going to mess you up so no, bad. Right. I'm gonna oh, oh my God, I get to play. The power. I'm normally a god, but now I'm a little person, but I still know about god things. <laughs> uh, I know what I can do. So was that your first entry to D&D, the 3.5 uh, edition? No, I was there for a second edition. Oh, wow. Old I school. Right really old school. Edition, what was yeah. it? Like um, mid-80s, wasn't it? Uh, something, I, I know I jumped in around about 88. Yep. Um... And the reason why I got into Dungeons & Dragons is because my brother, his friend, was also a bit of a nerd. He introduced me to all of the greatest games you could possibly ever know. Polar Radiance on the Commodore 64. Oh, yes. And as soon as he showed me that, that was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my life was gone. Mm-hmm. I started playing Polar Radiance like it was just the only thing that possibly existed during that time. It's the gateway drug. It is the gateway drug. And I played it. I played Polar Radiance so much that even if I go back to it now after I haven't played it for like 10 years... I will know exactly where I need to go. I know exactly where everything is. I've played it that much. Yeah. You know, go over through all of the um, slums district and pull the radiance when you know exactly which, you, which <laughs> location goes to which you can. It's the ogres and trolls who are tossing the sack of grain in the maze. All of the stupid things. Oh, uh, that... Yeah, when you've got that, that pre-knowledge, you just go, check this out. Let's have yeah. a look at this. And you know exactly... You can do the speed runs, basically. And of course, you know, you go into the Curse of Zero Bonds and all the secret level blades and all that type of jazz and the you know, after that, yeah, that's it. Yep. That's me. Wait, you got yep. jazz, yeah. So you discovered the the books and the the tabletop scene <laughs> well, soon thing, after. Funny thing that it is, when we started playing Pools of Radiance, me and my me and another friend of mine um, didn't know D and D existed. Hmm. We knew of Pools of Radiance. We knew yep. what sort of style of game it was. We didn't understand because we were still quite young that it was attached to a Dungeons hmm. and Dragons thing. So we actually sat down with notepads and started writing out our own rule set. Yep. Um, and we were doing it based on the based the, on what we learned in pools of playing pools of radiance yeah. and stuff like that. Um, we didn't understand, and then we were sitting in the library one day at the schools, is that like at high school, was in year seven, year eight, something like that. Um, and one of our other friends who does know D and D basically come up and goes, "Oh, I've got 
this for you? Redbox. <laughs> well, sorry, he tells me about the Redbox. I'm like, mm. That so sounds like, good. So it's like, mm. it's like telling us all about stuff like that. Yeah, it's got all this, it's got that, it's got this, it's got that. And we're going like, oh, okay. So I go down to, and we didn't have hobby shops mm. as we do these days. Yeah. Um, so I had to go down to a, like a game store, which is like, you know, board games and stuff like that. Yeah. But I was lucky because they actually had d and What they didn't have, they had, sorry, they had the red box. Uh, they had the red box, the blue box, the green box, and even if you know about the gold box. Oh, I know the gold box. Uh, I, I bought the gold box. Most, most things is like, I looked at it and went... It's the best, clearly the best. <laughs> it's like, I get to play gods. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but they also had the second edition uh, play handbook there. Oh, yes. I like The person that I am just went, all right, play handbook it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I just jumped the gun. Um, luckily, someone else not too long after that also had a red box and I somehow got a copy of it. Yeah. Um, so I got to go through, but I never actually got around to playing. I read the rules, but never got around to playing the red box. But for me, um, yeah, straight into second edition playing with a couple of my mates, mm-hmm. uh, of which I learned a lot about Dungeon Master very quickly <laughs> in that small period of time. Uh, how bad the Dungeon Master was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's pretty much how I got into doing all this stuff. Wow. Stuff. Really? Forever damn. Yeah, yeah as soon as cooked early on. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mind it so much. I quite enjoy it. Um, especially these days, I get to uh, act out quite a lot of different characters. I do a very sort of social, sort of what they call a social sort of D&D yeah. game quite considerably. Yeah, more about the, the role-playing and the, um, the, role the social playing. encounters rather yeah, than the yeah. combat encounters. But even, even then, when it comes to a combat encounter, I'm like, if you pull out some sort of something that sounds really cool, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a, I do what I call the double disadvantage. Okay. So like, I'll, what, if you do something, I'll automatically say, all right, that's automatically with disadvantage because it's like, sounds like hard, but whatever it is you want to do after is as the lead on, you get advantage on. Yeah. That's, that's, I call it double, double disadvantage, but that's what it actually means. Yeah. So the idea is to encourage something to do something really hard to get that focus at the end of it all type thing. So I enjoy that and then I get to see people go, okay, cool, I'm going to try this out, I'm going to try that out because mm. they've got that sort of motion, that, that rule in their head that they can do such a thing. I find that that's what a lot of the, the old school DMs do. Mm that they'll have that knowledge of how the game operates, how the game works, what the rules are able to do, so you know how to break them and how to tweak them just that little bit because you'll understand that the story gets better when people are allowed to let their imaginations run wild. So you're able to go, okay, so this is how advantage works. Let's do a double disadvantage. And it's not in the rules. It's just my little homebrew because I've been doing it long enough that I know this won't break everything and won't destroy the the similitude and everything about the world just because of this one little rule. For, um, like I have one memory, which is actually over a year ago now, because uh, just last Thursday after we've been recording this, I um, did a night at the Lido Cinemas for the Melbourne Film Festival. Oh, yes. D&D. Yeah. I did it the year before as well, and I run the same game both times because I knew I'd get new people. The very first time I ran it at the Lido Cinemas, I had, it was a heist, nice and simple. Um, one of the, uh, I go through a lot of tropes. And that's part of the comedy ghost drama. So one of the traps, of course, is like the Russian arms dealer. Oh, yeah. You know, in the back with a cart full of weapons. You know, the cart, of course, is black. It's painted it black. He's got the canvas over the top. That's right, yeah, exactly. Pulls aside the tarpaulin and, and it's just like, like swords. Swords and weapons and stuff. Crossbows. Like so um, I have a list of all of the weapons that they can buy. With. They, they get like 500 gold each. Like yeah. Like three, but they get they go on this spending spree. And for me, as a dungeon master, I just have all these quirky characters they introduce mm-hmm. as part of the shopping spree, and they spend hours doing this. Oh yeah! But it is such a 
baller of a time and they try and like rob them sometimes of course of course you show a player a shopkeeper and they will try to rob them or they'll try to to haggle them down from the bare minimum cost when it it comes to the russian and russian of course of course it's russian of course it's russian that's the time you can't leave even though it's that's goodbye (laughs) yeah oh it will be goodbye yeah (laughs) Uh, whenever they come to that guy, um, this the very first group who actually ran this one, um, the guy who was playing a cowboy as one of the character concepts mm. that I put together decided, have you got something like a grenade launcher? <laughs> it wasn't on my list, but this is one of those scenarios where you kind of just go, all right, I'll just roll a natural you know, random. Yeah, I roll a random, what, what I got. call the luck roll. They'll just roll a d20. Mm. If I roll well, then yes, obviously they've got what they asked for, and I think I rolled like a natural so he's just like going up to the back with his special stock and stuff like that. You know, he opens up this little nice chest and stuff like that. Chunk, and there's the grenade launcher. And so, uh, no, he wasn't the cowboy. He was the explosive expert. That's right. Of course, that's why he's he wants was, the grenade launcher. Yes, the grenade launcher. So he's with the grenade launcher. He's like, because he was using the, when I created the character for it, I was using the old artificer rules that they had yeah. on uh, EU. Uh, so he was basically making his flasks of, you know, flaming oil, uh, flaming oils and flask of acids and stuff like that, yeah. making him, putting him into the grenade launcher and firing him <laughs> off. Um, he was having an absolute ball of a time on that. Mm-hmm. Comes later on to the very last sort of bad guy that they have to deal with. And the bad guy is uh, doing the typical guards of a, a mansion hmm. and they've got like guard dogs, hmm. except they made the guard dog, you know, hellhounds. Yeah. Just, you know, make it a bit different. Make it interesting. Flame um, breath and flame all that. Breath <laughs> and it's a pretty tough encounter, especially when there's only like five people at the table. Mm. One hellhound, a few guards and stuff like that. If not, if things don't go your way, it can be a party wipe really quickly, but that's just inherently. But what happened during the encounter is one of the players had this notion of, because I portrayed the hellhound still as a dog. Mm. It just looks like a dog. It, it looks, looks like, like a big dog. Doberman. Exactly right. It's a big Doberman. So it's kind of like that... <laughs> <laughs> it's like tongue lolling out ears back because like, there was a little bit of role playing leading up before they actually got to the combat encounter so in this case they actually confronted the guy had a bit of a conversation yeah. which then the dog came out as like being the typical doom and so like that and combat was used and the health council to come out he decided that because of that notion of how that dog was set up fires one of the grenade launchers to sort of like play fetch with the dog. oh yeah yeah and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. So I'm like sitting there going, then I make the face to all of them about like the dog suddenly realise something's been thrown. <laughs> like, tongue rolls out. He's <laughs> perk up. He's perk up and he just starts like lumbering across the room <laughs> as he goes, voice jumping. Dragging the guard behind him. <laughs> and I basically do this description. I had two girls in the group too and I really love having um, women plays because of this particular type of reaction oh, yeah. I give a lot, which is the dog's running across the hall, jumps up across grabs the acid vial out of the air, crunches the gr- uh, the glass and the acid basically just like pulls all over his face oh. doing it. This dog's like this big massive smile on his face because it's grabbed the thing in yeah. the middle of the air. Like it won! Wood. It's like, yeah, tongue like melting off because of the acid. <laughs> the two girls are like, oh! <laughs> I treated it so much like a dog yeah. in the way I role played and portrayed it. It's a pathos, they, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every other, all the boys are just like laughing. The girls are like, oh, God, Dog. <laughs> oh no, you don't hurt the dog. Yeah, you don't hurt the yeah, dog. You don't hurt the dog. But for me, like that scene alone, um, this hellhound, they hadn't done a lot of damage to it or anything like that, but mm. it's like all of a sudden it just died because of one person's that would be hugely funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's so memorable. It is. Just that idea that of idea, yeah. yeah. And it's it's again using outside going outside that box. Yes, going outside going the outside box. The box because would never have happened had you not gone, hey. Yeah, there's a grenade launcher there. Why not? Mm. Yeah, it's just that yes and concept is yeah. so good. Do you think that's the most memorable 
encounter you've had or do you reckon there's something else that just I could spend the next three hours going. Oh yeah. With, uh, Let's narrow it down to one though. Is it? That's one. Of, that's one of the more important ones because I run that game quite uh, quite regularly. And yeah. I get. I love what I love about running that particular game on a regular basis is that I get different things happen. Mm-hmm. Different play for play things, different ways, and different things happen, and I get to see this wonderful thing where this thing that I've created played with different groups of people approached different ways no matter even if it's the same I've got to no matter how much I've written out I've got to add leave extra bits and pieces on top of because I've got a different group of people playing it you know? oh yeah everyone's got their own take on exactly. what's going yeah. on yeah and I absolutely love that mm. love it so much because you just go wow I did not expect that mm-hmm. to happen or did not expect this out. you get like particular groups who are really um, tactical about it like they're playing you know um, Rainbow Siege or something like that. <laughs> you know? Then they've got other groups who are just enjoying the um, the ride and having a bit of fun being sort of like... They're being wacky and they're being, being Batman wacky. swooping up onto the exactly. roof. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I find that's one of the strengths of something like even just the, the pre-plan, the starter kit adventure, the um, Minds of Fandelva, that you'll get different, different takes on it every single time. You'll have people, I'm going to interrogate the goblins i'm going to find out everything i'm going to torture them i'm going to just talk to them i'm going to become friends with them and it really gets you an idea of what these people are going to be like going forward that it's just every single time and you don't get that in regular campaigns yeah because you only get that encounter once in a regular campaign if you're doing it a new group every single time you get to see all these different colors and i think the only one you really get to do that with is curse of Strahd. Yeah. Because of that replayability of Curse of Strahd, mm-hmm. that you can come back after a generation and the stuff's still happening, yep. that it's still the same sort of thing. And it can be a different adventure every time that you can see the same group decide to take on new personas mm-hmm. and just go, okay, so we're going to do it differently this time. This time we'll get it right. <laughs> and they'll still come up with that grenade launcher and they'll still flip that Strahd the bird and they'll do everything wrong, but it'll be a new experience doing the same adventure. I think that's one of the funnest things it you is. can have. Just that replayability. One of the, um, when, I, when I run that particular game that I mentioned, um, one of the yep. things I always do when I start it um, is that don't worry about trying to finish it. Yeah. It's not important. This is a game where we have fun playing mm-hmm. D&D, not the actual finishing of this thing. Um, on the last Thursday just gone, when this was recorded, um, we managed to have enough time. Like I think... I started at about 5 p.m. and we still still were going in just a bit after 11 when we decided to finish it up for the night. Mm. We were at the end of the combat, stuff like that, but we had the time to finish it off. Um, it's designed as like a four-hour game where I can, you know, chop and change and stuff like yeah. that. We'll be just having heaps of fun. Um, the comedy was coming out. Um, people were interacting. There were people at the table because of it being a once-off and just people just uh, buying tickets through Lido to sort of be part of this. Mm. I saw a couple of like girls uh, rock up to my table who were partners of boys who obviously have done this before. Mm. And a couple of them just looked like they were here for the sake of being here. But given time through the game that I ran, the comedy that I ran and stuff like that, they, maybe they were always were this person because I don't know what they were, but they looked like from people who were just there for the sake of being there to people who were really engrossed in the whole game that they were coming out with their own awesome role-playing and stuff like that that just utterly surprised me. Yeah. And again, this is, this is one of those things where this is why I love D&D. Mm-hmm. Like, 
rarely get to see this in any other environment. When, when I start running, you know, as, as Dungeon Master, start running these things and see new faces come on board, I see them smile when you tell them about a story or something that their character's done. Then they do something themselves. They smile at someone else's characters doing some silly stuff and whatnot, you know. They start getting involved and start getting part of it. It is a wonderful experience, and that's why I don't mind being the Dungeon Master. Yeah. Yeah, you get to be invested and you get to create that experience in so many people so often. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think heists are a good one for those first-time players. Yeah. And particularly for ones where you've got that limited time because a heist, you think about a heist movie where you can go, okay, so it ends and you've got the goods, you're about to get out and then guards rush in, roll credits. The, you've got that cliffhanger. The beautiful, the beautiful thing is, is that because it's tropes, it all yeah. works on tropes. It all works like, on tropes. For the, for the game, there is a part where um, they've got to do a jail cell breakout because they've yeah. got an informant in there who can tell more about the heist that's actually going to go on. And so think of all the possible, you know, prison breakout mm-hmm. movies you can think of and mm-hmm. people have done it. Like the group on Thursday decided to get like catering outfits. Yeah. <laughs> you immediately know by saying that what they were doing. Yeah. And like, they've got like that little trolley thing where you have kids big enough to hide someone yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. they've got the, the blanket over the top. Yeah, they've got the cake with the nail file in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they've come up to like this uh, back entrance to the jail cells and stuff like that and they failed their deception check. Um but because one of the, the cleric was a trickster cleric, basically charm person, one of the guards, yeah. the guards like outnumbered um, on a social level, because one of the other guards goes, oh, that's right, I remember from last week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because he's now charmed. Yeah. You know, he's like, oh, oh, I know this guy, he's my best friend. No. <laughs> All right, just go through it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, just those tropes, those oh, absolutely yeah. lovely tropes, and I really just enjoy them so much. Is that something you lean into that um, if the dice aren't working for the trope, do you just go stuff it? It works better as a story that way, or do you let the dice fall and that's what happens? I, you know, I've been doing this almost what since eighty eight, I guess. Yeah, so a while, oh, a good while. 20, 20 years, learned, twenty years. Yeah, I've learned there is it, it is not that hard um, with the experience that I have. That it doesn't matter which way the dice rolls, you can roll the story the same way, which is. Yeah. It's a different circumstance based on what goes on. Like, um, in this particular case, if they had failed completely at that front entrance just by rolls, it's still D&D in the sense, so you can't mm. fudge it too much because they also had other, a couple of other combat characters sitting in the wings waiting for the shit to go down. Yeah. And the explosive expert was just going to set off bombs. The sniper was just going to take out guards so they could just do a runner and stuff like that. There was all those options available on the table. Um, so... If the front group had failed, it didn't matter. There was other groups with other parts of the plan in motion if required. Mm. Um, so in that particular case, no. But sometimes, yes, I do agree. Sometimes you'll f- not fudge the dice, but mm. fudge the outcome. Is yeah. a better way of putting it. it it's not a failure. It's a slight setback. It's a slight setback. That's right. It's kind of like, had they failed on that whole check, it might have been the guards coming with them. Yeah. You know, instead of letting them be on themselves, it was coming with them. They would have had to basically keep quiet and, you know, sort of figure out what their next move and how to mm. get rid of this guard, you know, surreptitiously without mm. erasing them all. You know, there is 101 possible options. And as a dungeon master, if you ever actually listened to this, um, failure should be not the stop. It's very important. If they fail at something, don't stop them from doing it. It could be fun in the end. Just make that failure become an additional hurdle in mm. some way. It's it's the um, the trope of you've got the you're trying to hotwire the door open. Yeah. You still open the door, but the alarm goes off. Mm-hmm. Like it could be even the case of like you're want to jump across a burning bridge or something like that. Um, 
they were always going to succeed at cross jumping across the burning bridge, but if they failed their jump roll, their athletics roll, or whatever it is, it just meant the difference between them not taking damage or taking damage. Yeah, that's they're now on fire. They're now on fire, that's right. They've yeah. got to deal with that. Yeah. So you just keep adding these little extra bits and pieces so the story can continue on as yes, required. Mm. Just that extra couple of things have happened to sort of um, make it a bit more interesting. Yeah. yeah. And you'll find as a dungeon master that um, you can get done what you need to get done and still have all of those roles without it actually stopping the thing. Mm. Yeah, you, you can't really break it down to a story so they have to succeed on this role. And yeah. I feel that a lot of the time, the very early adventures, I don't know if you how many of those early I, modules you I ran. didn't run any. Yeah, because they, they did roll, come down to, there's a secret door. They have to get through it to fight the boss. If they don't find the secret door, well, they just got to keep looking until they find that secret door because yeah. it's the only way in. You can't have roadblocks up like that, unfortunately, because flow, flow of story is probably more important than just putting up roadblocks for the sake of d rules. Yeah. Or yeah. any, any tabletop rules, to be honest. The rules are a guideline. They are. A, they are exceptionally a guideline. And it, also not just be said to the dungeon masters, also be said to the players. If the players at some tables, about the story is more important, in fact, probably more fun. Hmm. I've been doing this long enough that um, very combat-orientated sort of D&D campaigns get stale very quickly because yeah. they're not designed on a story. Yeah, and um, you just got to keep finding a bigger threat and a bigger, bigger threat, threat and a bigger, bigger threat. threat. And then you're fighting the planet of Tarasks. Yeah, and exactly. It's like... Well, you beat them, so I guess you're gods you're now. Gods now. Exactly. Oh. Yeah, it's like, well, that was like boring. If, you, if you're ever listening to this podcast and you're ever having that problem with people like, you know, playing on their phones, just look mm. at the game you're running first and start experiment, experimenting with other ideas. Mm. If you are actually struggling as a dodge master at your table with your players, they're not coming up all that often, they look like they're getting bored and stuff like that, well, you've got nothing to lose now. Experiment and go somewhere else. Yeah. You know? Try if they're playing Bejeweled, if they're playing Candy Crush throw some puzzles in yeah because they, yeah. they're really into puzzles apparently yeah. so yeah. give them some more puzzles and um just, just get them involved somehow yeah <laughs> yeah try something new because you know if you always group, try something new yeah if your group started the, a frizzle then just something in might actually be the thing you need hmm. and if you don't it doesn't work and your group falls apart well you've learned a couple of new tricks at least. yeah you know something else to try but you're saying you're saying that um you haven't run any of the old school modules which is kind of very much what built the Forgotten Realms. Mm. Um, do you have your own world that you've built around or do you just kind of have a set adventure like the heist that you have and then build a world around those adventures as the characters interact with it? Or is it just one overall world that you have? This is homebrew question, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you doing a, a Faerun? Are you doing a Dragonlance? Or is it just, this is my world, all the adventures happen there. How much world building do you do when you create an adventure? Um, when I first started, that's many questions. When I first started being the dungeon master, it was all Faerun because yeah, that's what um, was there. Polar readings, yeah, uh, Curse of the Zero Bonds, they're all set in that particular environment. So um, it was the main campaign you can get your hands on. So mm. it was very easy to get content. It was just content galore. Uh, and I've got like a lot of old books, like Oriental Oriental Adventures. The oh yeah, second, this first edition sort of um, book that you got was again um, from that particular part of the world. Mm. Um, just far on the other side of the continent type thing. Yeah. But there was just books galore. So that's first became a thing. But I never did um, pre-designed modules because I, part of uh, knowing me, um, I struggle to read and retain that content, mm-hmm. read and retain that content unless mm-hmm. I do it often enough. I find it's easier for me when I write stuff to create it in my head and write it down. Um, and that way my learning process for, um, I think being ADD, that's what I believe, uh, allows me to process it better that way if I write all my stuff out. Um, so that's particularly the reason why I never did any of the pre-games. 
However, I bought so many of the uh, history books. Oh yeah. Off air, and I like I even bought the um, big giant book Atlas book mm-hmm. uh, that was done by the same person who did the Dragonlance Atlas mm-hmm. book as well, stuff like that. I have books galore. Having those um, Atlas books, oh the maps. Yeah. The oh, maps, just being maps. able to break out a map and go, this is what you're looking at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so yeah, I just ran games out of there. Like I ran, I ran games. If you know Feyrun, if you know Forgotten Realms, I ran games mostly out of Sempia because Sempia was always designed as that. Mm-hmm. He's a big country with no real knowledge about it because of um, it's supposed to be your thing. That's yeah. the way Sempia was always um, designed. Um, I remember I always used to start off in the, my campaign. I run it a couple of times that I started off with. I ran it uh, in Mithrana or not near Mithrana. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the very first game, they're running like through a forest and stuff like that, and they're getting assaulted by you know humanoids, orcs, ogres, goblins, and stuff like that. It's basically kind of like a siege sort of scenario. Um, back then, I had one particular group decide to I, I let everyone roll you know maximum hit points at the first level, um, but one particular day, a group decided just to roll their hit points. Oh god! I, uh, <laughs> I had a wizard. I had a wizard <laughs> friend of mine, and I forgot this when I was being the dungeon master. No constitution bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, wizards were D4 back, D4 in the, back yeah, then yeah back in then he rolled yep. one. Ooh, squishy wizard so you know when I'm offhandedly saying you get like stuck you know you fail your deck save so you get stuck by like brambles or, mm-hmm. or something like that yeah you take a point of damage wizard's like ah oh, I'm dead I'm a bleeder I'm a bleeder he's like bleeding out and he goes kill again I'm like oh fuck I forgot <laughs> <laughs> it became a running joke for us after oh that. god that's so like... I was attracted from the point Originally was that. I was going to say, a particularly hard slap will take him down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. So I, I ran a lot of my games in the Forgotten Realm because hmm. a lot of the content was already there, made life easy. Um, then I actually stopped doing tabletop for a while. Um, I think I stopped doing, I stopped being a dungeon master for non, uh, D&D. I jumped in with a group of friends of mine and played Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as a dungeon master, as a player. This is the um, the West End? The West or, End. Yeah, D6, D6 Worlds. Oh yeah, yeah classic yeah, stuff. The classic stuff. That's why I'm looking forward to May the 4th. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I jumped in with them, had, had a lot of fun with them. I played, uh, if anyone's ever seen the movie Stripes, I based my character for the Star Wars game as a um, Special Forces Marine in the Re- Rebellion based off the guy who called himself Psycho. Okay. Uh, he basically goes through the movie, called me Psycho, and he's like flicking knife and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but the sergeant of the group goes, yeah, whatever, Francis. <laughs> <laughs> So I called myself Francis. Uh, I, I called myself Francis Grimp, even though the actual character is Francis Sawyer in the actual movie. But as I based it off that particular character, and I had a lot of fun with him. Uh, but then, yeah, um, then I got into LARPing, and then tabletop basically took a backseat. Yep. Uh, I played the odd couple of tabletop games over the years, then I stopped. And then about two years ago, uh, at work, uh, a friend of mine, actually, no, sorry, before work. This, I jumped in with another friend of mine. We started playing Holiday. We, we first started off by doing a couple of sessions of uh, Traveller. Mm-hmm. Um, but the DM didn't really want to run Traveller. He wanted to jump into something. So we started running Fate. Yep. Uh, played that for a bit. But that sort of didn't quite suit our group. Uh, and then he kind of ended the um, thing after about a year. And we didn't really get anywhere with it. Then um, one of my mates was uh, playing with got me a job through his work. And then through his work, we started running Shadowrun. Mm-hmm. The problem I had with Shadowrun is that it's very uh, made for those who really like to number crunch those rules. Oh, yeah. Shadowrun, I love the idea of Shadowrun, mm-hmm. but the rule system was just too much to sort of... It's tricky, yeah. Very tricky, very hard to get your head around, and because I didn't know all that well, I spent most of my time when I was DMing it. Um, 
to because I was been a DM for that particular mm. game, and the story I was coming up with, they were, they were loving, but we would spend like half of the session trying to figure out the rules half yeah. the time, you know. Um, especially when people were like trying to do hacky, actually, you know, like correct. So one of the other guys decided uh, on an off night, on a different night than Bill Bigmore played, um, to run a fifth edition one shot. Mm-hmm. Like I, I basically, like a lot of people, skipped uh, fourth edition. Yeah. Uh, and then stopped playing, and then fifth edition being out for a couple of years before I even touched it. He decided to play a one shot. Um, and in playing that one shot, because of the rules were so much more simple than playing Shadowrun, I just went, holy shit, this is so much better. Mm. I can actually play the character. It's so easy. And yeah. then, then I got back on board. I am getting back to the original. No, 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 I'm listening. <laughs> I think everyone's loving this. <laughs> but I guess this is what we want to know. This is how. This That's, is the journey. It is a journey, and it's very, it's very important, because this journey has is quite um, a lot about what's going to happen with my future as well. So, hmm. so in with my friend running that one shot, we went, holy shit, fuck it, we're just going to run D&D. Yep. Fifth edition, like this is just so much easier. We can actually play the game. Mm-hmm. You know? Actually play a game, not worry about the rules. What do you do? Roll the 20. Cool. Oh, what, what math? Snarry, no, advantage. Yeah, did it work? <laughs> yes, no. So that's, I, I understand how it can be a bit powerful, but that's brilliant. Yeah. The simplicity of it. The simplicity of it. Is, of it oh. It's really so keep, keep it simple, stupid, you know? Yeah. Everyone who knows their grand assault knows that rule. So we, I, I played as that first character in my fifth edition, which was. Go back to the original game, a half orc paladin. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh man, this is not second edition or even 3.5. There's no restrictions anymore. No. No, you just do what you half want. Half paladin, and that, you know, I looked at the character, it actually makes sense. Like, yeah. I was a paladin, I think, but paladin Avengers or some shit like that. And I'm like, there, yeah, I can see this. This is yeah. great. And I'm like, you know, well, uh, you know, in my best orky voice, hold on, first, I'll vengeance on you, and blah, 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 mm-hmm. that type of jazz. And we were just like having fun getting into it, not worrying about it, going through, listening to the story of the Dungeon Master who done through a one shot one night. And after that, I was like, oh man, why did I miss this? Why did I mm-hmm. stop doing this? You know? Um, and then uh, he started, did the same person who did one shot, started running the D&D game. Uh, not long after that, then you guys with yep. the Monday nights, Ben yep. basically put a post up. I, I this is um, D&D at Tramway. Damn D&D at Tramway. I, I knew of Ben beforehand. Like I saw his posts through all the various different D&D groups on Facebook. Um, so when he one day on the Melbourne Dungeons & Dragons tables basically said, we want some Dungeon Masters for uh, the Monday night, I went, all right, let's do it. Yeah, why not? <laughs> why not? Um, so I rocked up here on a Monday night, I get to meet Ben. And then, yeah, ever since then, I've been here on Monday nights for yeah. it's almost a year now. Yeah, we'll be on you now. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you just brought the world that you'd already been running over? Um, so what I originally did is I needed a, a campaign to run. Yeah. And I, at first, when I could take something that's already out there that has all of the information mm-hmm. that I had, but I don't like doing that because it's just too much information. I don't know what's out there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you get like something that's like so far outfield that you want to say no to, but because mm-hmm. you've already started running the campaign, you don't know what that is yeah. until it happens and it's too late sometimes by then. Yeah, you're in the middle of a favoring campaign and suddenly they say, well, there's this Unearthed Arcana, which is released just mm-hmm. for, for people who want to do the Far Eastern stuff, mm-hmm. but it's official, so I got to accept it. Yep. Yeah. So what I've learned over the years is when uh, I decided to go with my own homebrew. Hmm. When I do my home my homebrew, I do it in such a way that um, I, you don't need to know the big world. Mm-hmm. You need to know your little village. You know your little village. Um, I, I found as a dungeon master over time is that the bigger the world is, the more information that they have thrown at them about the world you want to try and present, the less likely they're going to get attached to it. Yeah. Because you're overwhelming them. 
Yeah. You start at the smallest possible things you can do, and it doesn't have to be anything. So in that particular sense, it became homebrew because the rest of the world didn't really matter all that much. Mm. You know, in fifth edition, they don't. They, which was interesting, they don't emphasize the religions as much on clerics as the no. types of uh, domains that you have. Mm. Whereas in three point five, they always went um, like in the actual player's handbook in the three point five, they have um, all of the Greyhawk. Uh, oh, the classic. The classic Greyhawk um, yeah. pantheons and stuff like that. But in this edition, they don't. Hmm. They just um, have you have you are a tempest, don't tempest or, or a trickery light or, or trickery or something yeah. like they have more ideas than they are in specific religions, which yeah. I thought was actually quite good. Uh, in that particular sense, you don't need to play as actual religions if you don't want to, hmm. which means you can make them up as you go. Oh yeah, you know, which means you've got a bit more freedom about how they want to do. You can twist them to sort of suit what you need to do. So, excuse me, the very so yeah, but basically created a small little village. One, one church, one temple, one religion. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to really make up. I didn't have yeah. to make up the rest. You just so, make the religion for the cleric in the party, and that's all you have to worry yeah. about. And um, I didn't even have a cleric in the party. Yes. Yeah. So it didn't matter. The other one you normally have to have is the druid or the mm-hmm. nature person, but that's just like, it's, it's just nature. There's a forest out there. Yeah. That's where you come from. Nice and easy. So that gave me the opportunity to go with this one religion and give them you know, a bit of a lie. Because mm-hmm. they're not surrounded by fifty other possible religions that everyone's just got to remember by name, let alone who they are and what they do. You just have to say, in this village, they worship the sun god. Exactly. Yeah. That's all. You know, some people know about other gods. You don't care about them. They're from other villages. Well, in this particular case, um, because of being a home homebrew world, this religion I put together, I did it sort of um, as a um, kind of like a martyrdom sort of religion. Mm-hmm. They're designed on very paladin sort of concepts. They mostly spend their lives just training and training and training and training and training and training until that big bad thing happens. And then they all march forward in this big massive crusade to either take that big thing out or die trying. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a couple of times in their history where they've almost died. They've <laughs> 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 almost been wiped out entirely. Wiped out sort of yeah. um, and that's how I just basically just put the religion together at first. I made it a uh, matriarchal, so I made it uh, woman-dominated. Mm-hmm. Later on, when I was taking the, talking with a friend of mine, um, came up with the concept of making it the three sisters mm-hmm. um, the classic fates yeah the classic fates the type yeah. of thing and whatnot. And kind of like to fit it in like the three sisters who are constantly at, at each other's throats as well as side by side type thing mm. um, as part of their history and whatnot. it evolved over time mm. and because the players uh, didn't, ha- didn't have all of that information straight off the bat it made it a little bit easier for them to go that's really cool and jump in to each you know, area and then add more to it so on and so forth um, so, yeah. so that's really just how it started. You started with that one little village and built out, or did pretty you much, have yeah. pretty much one little village and built out? Um, that general design concept of that game, though, was, um, was a very loose uh, deadwood um, mm-hmm. sort of game. So it was always designed around that one village, and that one village had struck silver in the hills. So kind of like a silver rush, eventually turned into a gold rush yeah. type thing and whatnot. And so you had to have the sort of like the the talky sort of, you know, swearing a lot sort of tavern keep type mm-hmm. thing, as well as a few other sort of main characters and stuff like that. And over time, because we're building up, I only have to have a small handful of characters I can introduce. So by the time they've gotten used to this small handful of characters, they know who everyone is. They knew who to talk to. Um, Heinrich, who was the um, person who was being a money exchanger, so if you came with like silver nuggets, he'd immediately exchange them for proper coins. Yeah. You know, and they knew exactly who to talk to. They knew, oh, let's go talk to Heinrich because we know who he was. Yeah. You know? Oh, he's the fish man. We know to talk to him. Uh, we know who the innkeeper is. We know who the tavern keeper is. You know, they get to know these characters, then you can introduce a couple more. 
Mm-hmm. And then once they've gotten used to those ones, you can introduce a couple more. And by this stage, they may have learned of like 50 odd different characters, but because they've learned them over time in small numbers... They retain that. They retain that. Yeah. And that, to me, that's why I want... This took many years to learn. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I enjoy the homebrew, where it's just not this... 30-odd books thrown at you. Yeah, you don't throw the king's family tree at them on the first session. Exactly right. Only when they meet the king and then learn that his grandfather killed a whole bunch of their relatives. Exactly. That's when you find exactly that out. Right. Like, I never considered anything outside of the village. Like, hmm. nations or anything like that. I never considered that. And I thought to myself, like, I was getting to a point when the players on the Monday night had gotten to level 7. And I have what I call the um, seven, uh, 7, 14, and 21. So the first seven levels is you're nobodies, even if you are getting powerful up towards yeah. levels, you're still nobodies. Yeah. You know, once you hit level seven-ish, you start to get to that point where it goes, where you now got some power, you've made some influences, you've made some friends, you've made some enemies. Mm. You know, so depending on which path you go, because I really like open worlds, dictates sort of the start of the game that gets run. Once you hit level fourteen, you are very powerful. You are now helping nations defeat other nations, or you're helping defeat gods who are being summoned by other powerful entities and so forth. Can't okay, never get that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, um, homebrew it. Love homebrewing it. Um, I think it's fantastic to homebrew it. Yeah. Because and I think because there's the know, scaffolding there already yes. in the in the um, Wizard of the Coast books to just build a, a homebrew world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The other game that I run. Uh, which is our Sunday night stream, uh, the Salt of Dragon Tavern on Twitch. Because um, that's a different world. That is a different world. Yeah. That, um, the difference with that world is that that world was a big world mm-hmm. chucked at my players. But my players all existed in that world long before we started that D&D game. Because we're all LARPers. We all do like live action role playing. So the world we decided to run, or the D&D game we decided to run, mm-hmm. was based off of the world we were actually LARPing in. Mm-hmm. So we'd been LARPing for a good five to seven years for me, and I've been there for at least eight or nine. Um, so we learnt over time of all the different groups of people who were um, going, and all these groups of people were all um, from the war bands within the LARP. Mm-hmm. They created their own little histories, they created their own stories and stuff like that, and they all just got put into a big melting pot. <laughs> it's the spin-off it's series. It's basically the spin-off series. Yeah. So we knew exactly who we were talking about when we said this particular group or that particular group. So we inherently knew all the histories and stuff like that. So it made it very easy for us to just basically yeah. jump in and know exactly what's going on. Yeah. I based off running the start of that game based off at that point in time when we started what was actually happening in the LARP mm-hmm. as part of my story. Mm-hmm. Then they decided we went to Warhammer World. They got rid of that yep. world. <laughs> and we went on our own path after mm-hmm. that. I find that that's what happens. You quickly diverge from what everyone else is doing. Yeah. So in sense, that was also a homebrew world, but the difference is, is that that was homebrewed by three, four, five hundred odd people who put their yeah. little two Who've been working on it for, yeah. for a decade or so. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a luxury in that moment because all of these stories that were written mm. weren't written by me. Mm. And I was able to just like, I'm gonna use, can I use your story? Yeah. I love your story. I'm going to bring it out into this D&D game. Yeah. You know? And that's why I like to do homebrews. Uh, Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. We are recording this right above the tramway where we run games for people on Monday nights. So we've got to get down and have some food before we start running some games. Um, But if you'd like to plug Salty Dragon or um, where they can find you. forward slash the Salty Dragon Tavern. Or if you just Google Salty Dragon Tavern on um, Google, of course, you'll see all of it, like the uh, the Facebook page, the Twitch TV. Um, You'll also see the YouTube channel and all that type of stuff. Uh, the thing about Twitch is, is because of the way it works, it's the Salty Dragon Tavern. Yeah. 
If you just search Soldier Dragon Tavern, it's someone else. It's, no, it doesn't even exist. Yeah. Um, I did create the account accidentally. <laughs> uh, and so when I created it, then I created the Soldier Dragon Tavern. And then I deleted the Soldier Dragon Tavern account. But because of the way their database works, obviously, right. I can't change it back to that name. Yep. Even though I can change the name. I'm like... <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Salty Dragon, the Salty Dragon Tavern on Twitch. We do it Sunday nights Australian time, starting around about 6.30 p.m. Cool, cool. Well, thanks for coming in, Tim. No worries. Thanks for talking with us. I think everyone's had a great time listening. I know I, I have. We could go on and we on. Could. and I think Hours. I think most DVD players love that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs>